Welcome to the GC Podcast, a podcast to help you develop into the healthiest ministry leader you can be by sharing practical ministry experience. Hello, friends, and welcome to the latest episode of GC Podcast. This podcast is devoted to exploring best ministry practices in the context of Grace Communion International Churches. I'm your host, Kara Garrity, and today I'm glad to be interviewing John Rittner. John is a pastor, church change catalyst, and coach to church planners and pastors. He now serves as chief strategic officer of Communitas International, which is a global church planting organization. He lives in LA with his wife and two kids. In his spare time, he likes playing basketball, golfing, reading, and traveling. John, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Kara. It's great to be back with you and looking forward to uh, diving in again to some great topics. This has been, this is really life-giving last time we connected. Yes, absolutely. And for today's conversation, we're really going to be exploring together um, kind of change and, and growth and innovation in the life of the local church. So before we kind of jump right in, I'd love to know what, what makes today's topic something that is important to you. Yeah, you know, I think... Um, uh, I spent 10 years working in a kind of uh, institutional uh, form of church that was probably formed in the 80s and 90s in the church growth movement with a lot of emphasis on Sunday morning and uh, professional leaders and, you know, uh, highly intensive programs and big property. And um, and honestly, that that model was working and thriving for a while. But there was, um, you know, it's, it's easy to fall in love with models um, mm. And, you know, any sort of model begins as a, an answer to a cultural or contextual question. And over time, our, our culture and our context changes. And if you fall in love with something, it's very hard to try to change it. Um, you know, and so uh, my own journey of recognizing the need to uh, to adapt, to innovate to the, the world around us, especially kind of as I frame it of like kind of post-Christianity in the West or the rise of secularism in the West you know, led me on a journey to Europe and then ultimately here to uh, L.A. to pastor and work with churches here who are facing that. And we all need to embrace the call to perpetually adapt and innovate as leaders. And and honestly, the more I dive into this, the more I recognize, like, for the, the primary reason is because we have a theological mandate. I mean, repentance and renewal is at the center of the God story. It, it's at the heart of the gospel that God is changing us and transforming us. Um, and so we have a theological imperative to consistently evaluate and assess the health of our ourselves, our families, our organizations, to hold them up in light of the character of Christ and to say, hey, you know, what are the areas that don't look like Jesus that we need to uh, identify, repent of, and then try to seek Christ likeness, try to seek transformation, Um And so I think it's very easy to just kind of go about the flow as a church leader and assume that your church represents Christ and not to kind of pause and reflect and say, hey, you know, do we look and sound and act like Jesus in the world? And if not, then we need to repent. We need to rethink. We need to uh, reimagine what that could look like. And so, um, you know, the, the history of God's people always includes this prophetic call to return to faithfulness whether it's the prophets of the Old Testament calling out the people of Israel or Jesus coming and, you know, calling out the Pharisees and the religious leaders or Paul and his letters calling the church to, to return to the original understanding of the gospel or to return to behaviors that represent the, the, the person of Christ. Um, this prophetic call to faithfulness 
uh, is one that I think is is part of this idea of innovation. Innovation is probably maybe even overstated in that I don't think everything that we'll be talking about today has to be new. It's not all about mm. uh, new and novel and, and super creative. Sometimes innovation involves a, a return to the ancient ways because it's really mm. more about kind of repentance and renewal and um, you know conforming to the nature of Christ. So, so I think that's the, this idea of of repenting, um, which is so key, even in the book of Revelation, right? Like the seven churches are told, if you don't repent, your lampstand will be removed. And so, I mean, that's all you need to, to, in my book, is to look at Jesus calling out seven churches and saying, you know, the the essence of faithfulness is ongoing, continual repentance, is reforming yourself into into his nature. Um, and then, so there's a theological mandate for this um, conversation, I think, around renewal and innovation, but there's also a, a missional mandate. I mean, the world is just changing, you know, um, and it's changing at such a, a rate and pace that most organizations um, are struggling to change in any at a similar pace. And churches historically have done a really poor job of this. I mean, we are legacy institutional organizations that tend to be structured for longevity and for stability. And we mm. historically have not been nimble, flexible, adaptable organizations like, you know, maybe businesses can be. Um, and so we're in many ways, I think we're kind of falling behind the cultural trends. Uh, and therefore, there's potential for next generation to raise up, to, to grow up and have no real connection to the way that local churches are expressing the life of Jesus, that they often don't find expressions of church to be um, uh, connecting with their own spiritual journeys um, or even speaking the language that they're interested in pursuing when they think about what does it mean to add value to the world or what does it mean to connect with a higher being or what does it mean to be on a, a personal journey of development? And so, um, you know, this kind of post-Christian culture that we're facing is demanding a, a new way of thinking and a new way of structuring ourselves in order to connect with people who really are not walking into the doors of existing churches anymore, whether it's a, a lack of institutional credibility, they don't trust the church, the church is filled with you know, hypocrites or judgmental people, or the church has got all of its abuses of power in the past. There's that element. And then there's also, I think, just the the element that the, the culture, the practices, the liturgies, the songs, the language that are spoken inside of a church gathering on a Sunday are just not familiar to someone who hasn't grown up in that. And so the cultural gap is too large for them to bridge, you know, on a regular basis. And so they end up kind of staying in their culture and looking for answers within their culture rather than being able to cross over into a quote unquote Christian culture or Christian space. And so I think that from a missiological point of view, that demands that we as the sent people of God go out and engage with them where they are, that we embed with them, that we embody Jesus, that we incarnate Jesus in those spaces um, and so it's not enough to just kind of sit and say, hey, this is the way we've always done it, and it's on the people to come to us. That's not the heart of the gospel, right? Jesus didn't sit mm -hmm. in heaven and say, all right, guys, mm -hmm. clean up your act, and when you get it all together, I'll be here ready for you. He said, no, 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 the, the world is broken, and I will enter into its brokenness, and I will take on the nature and the form of the culture as it's being expressed, and then I will model something better in the midst of that. And so that's the, the missiological mandate, I think, on the church right now is to figure out how do we 
contextualize Jesus in a culture that is very different than it was 50 years ago, uh, especially here in America, you know, in the West. Yes, yes. And you know what I think is is so important about what what you've said is I and I really like your your phrase um repentance and renewal because mm. I think that 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 really drives home the the facts that we're not talking about change or or growth or innovation just for change growth or innovation sake right yeah. we're talking about these things happening in response to um what God is is doing in our midst, and and for it to be framed in the sense of a a theological and a missiological um, mandate, I think is is so important because oftentimes we we might want change just for change's sake, but um, sure. or familiarity just for familiarity's sake, based on our personalities, right? But it's not it, at the end of the day, it's not a, about us and whether we seek familiarity or change just for their own sake. But um, how are we being called as the body of Christ to that repentance and renewal? I think that that's really excellent um, a way yeah. for us to, to think about that. And so, you know, I'm wondering a little bit more specifically, you, you spoke to this, um, you know, really, really well. But is there more that you would add to what role does um, this repentance and renewal that can be expressed through change and growth, what role does that play in developing healthy church rhythms? And on the other side of that, how can a church community be impacted when that isn't present? Mm. Yeah, you know, I think most organizations right now in America, I mean, just from a historical point of view, are facing a crisis. Um, they're facing a a crisis of uh, you know financial stability, a crisis of numerical uh, stability. Most churches after COVID have expressed that they're kind of averaging that they've lost thirty percent of their people who have just created new rhythms of life and aren't connecting with either Sunday services or existing programs. Uh, like I said, there's this kind of missiological crisis of how do we reach the next generation. Um, and you know, the way I try to articulate this idea of repentance or renewal is almost imagining it as, um, you know, a journey down, uh, how do I describe like a well, you know, well curve, which is the, the upside down version of a bell curve. Um, and, you know, I, I borrow a lot of these ideas from one of my mentors, Alan Hirsch, whose book actually just came out this past week called Metanoia, which is really all about organizational repentance. And some of these ideas mm. that um, some of us in his organization were discussing three years ago in COVID. But, you know, we're all facing this kind of unraveling right now where the world is pulling hard on the loose threads of modern American Christianity, you know, whether it's politics or social unrest or COVID, um, you know, all sorts of things are just kind of pulling and the church in many ways is kind of coming undone. So you're seeing a lot of disunity in congregations. You're seeing denominational fractures. Um, you know, you're seeing disinterest, you know, people were just purely just up and walking away. Um, and that, that unraveling is kind of uncovering that there's a lot of practices and paradigms within the church that are not very Christ-like. Um, mm. they're not very healthy. They're not very kingdom oriented. You know, there's a lot of ways in which just Western secular culture has invaded the church. And we've started to look a lot like, um, the, the, the culture around us. I mean, one of the most prominent ways I think is the way we handle power in the church. Um, you know, for all the talk about servant leadership in the eighties and nineties, I'm not sure that, you know, most churches really, um, 
hold power loosely in service of others the way we're called to. Uh, there still tends to be a lot of a hierarchy and a lot of a you know, triangle top-down decision-making. And yeah, we're not necessarily reproducing the quality of leaders that we wanted and we wonder why. And so, you know, I think a lot of our paradigms are being uncovered and and what that's leading to then, I think when when people even in the church go, this, this isn't what I signed up for, or this isn't what I wanted it to be, or I'm disappointed. You know, the big word now I hear is deconstructing. People are kind of, they're deconstructing their faith. They're basically unlearning it. They're they're rejecting it. They're either walking away from what they know to be true, um, which is often how deconstruction is described. But I really think what they're basically doing is holding on to what they know to be true, but walking away from the ways it's being expressed. Um, mm. And so, you know, they're, they're trying to cling to Jesus, trying to cling to even the Holy Spirit, but they're frustrated with the ways that institutional church has expressed those things. And they're not resonating with them. And so sadly, you know, they're often trying to go do the Christian life on their own, which is really unhelpful. So, you know, this unraveling, this uncovering, this unlearning, I think is is causing a lot of leaders to have to try to come to a better understanding of what are the paradigms and practices that are defining modern day Christianity. And are they actually biblical? Are they Christ-like? Um, you know, the way we deal with power, our treatment of women, our treatment of the outsiders, uh, the way we've handled resources. I mean, all of these sort of, I think, paradigm shifts uh, that need to take place. Um, and, and this is really what the heart of innovation is to me, is this repentance of, hey, let's get down to the core of who we are, of our operating systems and find out, is, does this really look like Jesus? And if we find out it doesn't, if we have the courage to admit there are things in our organization, there are things in our systems that don't really represent the kingdom of God. They don't represent the values of Jesus. They they don't look like an upside down kingdom that we're supposed to be embodying. Um, then how do we renew them? How do we? Again, you can use the word innovate or adapt. I, I like this. I like the repentance and renewal language. How do we renew them to to create something that looks more like the kingdom and and um, and so that upward journey of of renewal to me is one that I've been helping a lot of organizations kind of think through and some different leaders. And, uh, and for me, you know, that the language I use on the upward scale there is, is wrestle, experiment, develop, and scale. Like how do we wrestle to express some new paradigms? How do we wrestle to express new practices? You know, if we agree that most disciples don't look like Jesus, that the discipleship pathways we've created are not actually forming people to look like Jesus. Well, then how do we, wrestle with some new practices, some new paradigms. Mm. You know, I know a lot of churches are leaning into, and this is why I say innovation is not always about the future. They're leaning into the ancient concept of a rule of life, which is just a, a, um, a community committing to each other to live out a set of personal practices on a daily basis. So it could involve um, spending time in in God's word on a regular basis, which is often the one practice that people initially think about, but it could also involve hospitality. It could be, you know, a weekly expression of hospitality for your neighbors. It could look like a rule of life that includes, um, you know, one intentional act of blessing to someone who doesn't know Jesus every week. Um, three meals with people where you ask a, a spiritual question to try to have a meaningful conversation, right? But these are just the idea being that maybe we're not forming people well on Sunday and small groups alone, but maybe what we actually need to do is wrestle with some daily practices that might form people to look more like Jesus. 
Um, and so wrestling with that paradigm, then experimenting, let's, let's just try this, you know? Um, and then as you get some success with some experiments, developing them and creating some, some pathways others can follow that hopefully you can scale up and reproduce. So I'm just kind of summarizing that we can dive into that journey as well there. But, but to me, the, the repentance journey is the journey of awareness that things aren't as they should be. And then the renewal journey is the journey of activity and action to try to create things that, that we think should be. Um, and that is honestly, I hope the journey that all of us are on, on a daily basis, as we walk with Jesus, what's not right and how do I get it right? And then also what do we do as an organization to admit what's not working, what's not faithful, what's not Christ-like, how do we identify that, change it, shape it, and try to express something that is right. Um, so that's, that's kind of the language that I'm using when I think about this idea of innovation, uh, is just really a return to faithful expression of Jesus. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And when, you know, when you're working with a, a church leadership or a local congregation, whoever it may be in that process of, of repentance, that kind of recognizing, um, you know, maybe what isn't as it should be and, and that process of renewal, how, how do you help um, or how do you recommend a, a group to know when it's it's time for that repentance or and then renewal maybe like what are some signs that that folks look out for how do how do we discern that that process of repentance i mean i would say in one time it's always time for repentance and renewal yes I mean, you know the, the church of the reformation is always reforming right so it's like we should always Amen. be yes um just identifying what areas of our organization are we focusing on right now you know um and and again, there's a balance to that. I mean, it, you can't change everything all at the same time. You, you know, every uh, organism that is adapting is also uh, has uh, part of it that is creating stability, right? So there has to be a balance of both risk and security at the same time, um, or else you know you, you'll you'll burn out. So too much security, you don't innovate. You know, too much stability, you don't grow new cells and you die but too much innovation and you can't stabilize that growth and you'll die as well. So, um, so you do have to kind of think through adaptation at a, at a pace that your organization can, can withstand. And so, um, you know, I do think the timing and tempo that you roll out new ideas and new changes is important um, because, you know, anyone can, you can easily blow up your church in 90 days over, kind of innovation ideas. Mm. Um, and if you don't blow up the church, then you'll just lose your job because they'll just get rid of you. Um, you know, because right. every organism has its own way of, of, uh, kind of eliminating threats to its, um, to its comfort. And so, uh, there, yeah. So I, that's the first thing I'd say is don't wait until you feel this pinch. I think it's always healthy to be prophetically asking Jesus, you know, bring to our awareness areas of our organization that are not honoring that are not faithful, that could grow, that could change, um, and then make that part of your culture, that it's not as if we only innovate when we're dying, or it's not as if we mm, only change mm -hmm. when we're failing. We're always changing. We're always growing. We're always trying new things um, because we want to be kind of an adaptive organization that um, is, is a learning organization, really, you know, that we never assume we, we are certain on how to do things. We're always curious about is there a better way? Is, is God doing something new? How do we join that? 
So I think that's the first thing I'd say is, is don't make it into a, a dramatic declaration that we have to innovate because we're dying. That just kind of sends people into a panic. It's better to think mm. about the fact that we're perpetually innovating and renewing because that's what it means to be, you know, a humble organization. Um, and then, I, you know, I think at that point, then trying to identify what are key leverage points in the organization that you really want to think about? Like, is it working with youth? Is it um, engaging in your neighborhood? I mean, you know, what are some of the key places where you might be able to make a small change for a big impact? Um, and, you know, for me, a lot of that, in my experience, has been in getting people engaged in serving the local communities, the local neighborhoods, becoming more aware of their own sense of, of calling and giftedness. So they have more confidence that when they go about their life and the places they live, work and play, they know how to add value in that environment. They know, you know, the phrase we often say, they know how they are good news there. Mm. You know, they know what they can do to, to uh, embody the, the kingdom of God in those spaces. Most people, if you ask them that, if you say, Hey, how are you good news in your workplace? Or what are you doing to live out the life of Jesus? They just kind of look at you like, I don't know what that even means. Right. Um, and then if you said to the average churchgoer, like, okay, well, but what's your ministry? They might say, oh, I work in kids or, you know, I'm a parking lot attendant. Well, it's like, well, that's not your ministry. That's, those are the chores that we perform when we gather as a family so that we can, you know, care for all the needs that we have. But your ministry is primarily one that Jesus is, is where you join Jesus out in the world. And mm. so, um, you know, to me, that's been a big leverage point for innovation is churches trying to think about how do we equip our people to live as everyday missionaries in the places they live, work, and play, and what are the skills and practices they might need to, to kind of do that. So, um, yeah, I think that's the two things I'd say is, is normalize this repentance journey so it doesn't feel as um, anxiety-producing. And then also, secondly, is to try to identify what are some key places where a small change could make a big difference. Um, it's probably not Sunday mornings. It's, you know, it's, mm. um, it's probably not even something as, as stable as like your property. It's probably going to take place, um, in the, the spaces of life that, um, exist between your Sunday gatherings. Yeah. Thank you, John, for saying that. And, and one of the things that I think is really important for us to note is this idea that, um, change or growth, innovation, repentance and renewal is not just this one time thing. I, I think that that um, is is really key that that you mentioned that it's an ongoing um, rhythm, an ongoing posture. And so I, I'd love for you to take us back to um, that process of renewal and maybe zoom in a little bit to each of those steps in the process of, renew of renewal and, and talk us through what does that what does that look like and how does how does it look for a, a church community to go through that? Yeah, you know, I'll give a couple examples of um, kind of paradigms that I think need to be, um, you know, uh, <laughs> we need to repent and renew, so to speak. You know, I mean, one yes. of the classic <laughs> ones from my own journey is just the idea that most American um, churches, the, their disciple making um, process is super reliant on professionals, properties and programs. Um, you know, it's a, a professional trained person on the stage. It's a, a property that people can gather in. It's a series of programs that take a lot of volunteers. And all of those things are pretty centralized forms of disciple making that aren't resonating as much with um, people in post-Christian culture who aren't necessarily comfortable in, in a church space. 
Um, and therefore, they're, they're not going to meet your professionals and they're not going to join your programs. So, you know, if you recognize that that old paradigm is passing away and we need to repent of it, meaning, again, not moralistically repent of it, but just mentally and, and in our soul, rethink it and, and have a new mindset and recognize that a more uh, ancient and maybe even more biblical from a first century point of view pathway is that it's, it's everyday disciples making disciples. So you hear that language, right? Disciples making disciples. And that's what everyone wants. But do we really have, are we really equipping our average uh, person, our ordinary person in our, in our you know, church to go out and be able to make disciples the other six days of the week? Uh, most people that I talk to feel like no one's ever trained them to do that. They don't know how to do that. They rely on a program or they rely on a professional. And so, um, you know, once you identify that there's something broken there and then you wrestle with and you articulate this new paradigm, hey, we want to have, you know, every disciple in our community knowing how to make a new disciple without a reliance on property programs, professionals. Well, then you start experimenting. You say, okay, so if we're wrestling with that, what's the, let's state a hypothesis and, and experiment. You know, what, what's a way to try to train those people to do that? Or what, it, what, do the, what does a disciple need in order to do that? Do they need a, a supportive community? Do they need a set of resources? Do they need tools? Maybe let's ask them, what prevents you from engaging in more disciple making in your spaces, right? Um, but maybe you hear them say, hey, no one's ever trained me to live that way. Um, what you're talking about sounds almost like being a, a missionary. And I, I've never thought of myself as a missionary. I've never been trained to live as a missionary. Um, and so I would need someone to train me to do that. So you say, okay, well, why don't we create an experiment where, you know, a small batch experiment at low cost where we take 10 people and we put them in a, a three-month, you know, training program and we look for some resources where we can try to train and equip them to live as missionaries and give them a set of practices that they can engage in and be accountable to. And we can, you know, learn together and let's experiment with this three month discipleship program and find out, does this train people and equip people to do what we want? It's not a 10 year commitment. It's not a hundred thousand dollar commitment. It's low cost, low risk. Um, and you know, in a small batch, you're not, putting everyone in the church through something, but you're just running a little experiment on the fringes of the organization. And then you're finding out what did, what do we learn? What we learned was it resonated with extroverts, but introverts had a hard time. Okay. So it didn't quite connect. So now we have to, to, you know, let's run another experiment for how do introverts make disciples? What are the tools they need? You know what I'm saying? So what you're basically doing is just creating a, an experiment creates a feedback loop. Right. You know, you experiment, you fail, you learn, you repeat. Um, and, and the failure actually is what helps you keep learning. Um, and so, you know, the, the goal then is to create a culture of kind of perpetual experimentation within your church. So any of these paradigms that you might identify, another paradigm you might think about is, you know, we're frustrated that our church tends to be a hierarchical top down authority uh, or centralized authority organization. And we don't think that is biblical or really healthy. So what would it look to have more of a, a team-based or a um, dispersed leadership uh, organization? Well, let's start. Let's put together a team of people that maybe are representing different gifts and um, experiences in the church, and let's give them responsibility for one pr project or one task. 
and let's see, what do we learn about team-based leadership? Um, and what are the challenges? What are the benefits? And how do we begin to scale that up so that eventually maybe our, our entire organization is a team-based organization and not a, a solo kind of heroic-based organization? So I'll give you an example of that. In, in Brussels, when I was over there, you know, we were really trying to decenter the professional. We didn't want anyone thinking that only professionals could teach the, the Bible. Only professionals could lead ministry. Only professionals could make a disciple. And so um, what we didn't want was a paid pastor teaching 40 Sundays a year at any of our gatherings, because that would just reinforce that, right? Mm-hmm. So we created a, a like an eight-person teaching team. And every Sunday, whenever, you know, we had, we had small localized gatherings, but in all of our localized gatherings, it was non-professional people who were doing the Bible teaching. Um, now, the experiment that we came up with to try to figure out how to be, help them be successful was we would gather Tuesday night with this team and we would, you know, identify our scripture. We'd break it down together. We would, um, you know, pray through it. We'd begin to structure some main ideas. And, and then basically we would work together to create kind of a common lesson, even though each person would individually put their own application onto it and tell their own stories and things like that. Um well, that was an experiment, and some of it worked, some of it didn't. We were always kind of tweaking it as we went to improve it. Um, you know, we the question you ask with an experiment is, if it didn't work, let's pivot and go another direction. But if it did work, then let's persevere. Let's just keep doing it more and more until it becomes a habit. Um, and so, you know, that was one element of culture where we identified, hey, here's a an ex- here's part of our church we don't think represents the heart of Jesus. Let's repent of it. Let's identify a new paradigm and a new practice. And then let's begin to seek renewal by experimenting with new ways of expressing this. And then once it kind of worked and the experiments worked, well, then now you have something that you can kind of develop and scale and express in other areas, you know? So maybe you take that same mentality and you, you know, you, you create other teams uh, within the organization in areas of leadership where primarily there was just one individual, you know. Um, so, you know, again, you're running these experiments with people who who want to experiment, you know, don't try to find the, the stodgiest, grumpiest, oldest person in your church and say, hey, you're joining the experiment, um, you know, but you're looking for some of those innovators and early adopters. Mm-hmm. And you're basically trying to create, you know, in the business world, they call it a minimum viable uh, product, like the, the, the experimental version of something that you can run and, um, and implement. Um, it's the beta version, right? It's the thing they release first to the testers. Um, so I think that that cultural change of um, not just saying, well, we've always done it this way, but saying we want to be a church that is always trying to do it in new ways. And specifically around, um, you know, the, the trying new things because they are more faithful expressions of Jesus and the church, you know, not just for the sake of novelty, you know. Yes. And I think that in that process, something that I find really helpful is that that experiment phase where you really do do something, you know, kind of on the side. It, it doesn't require the whole church to do that. And and in GCI, I, you know, a connection that that I, I make is we use a lot in our leadership teams. Um, this tool called the five voices. And some of those voices are a little bit more future oriented in their thinking, some more present and, and, 
so some of them are more of that, you know, that innovator. Let's let's go get it. Let's let's move ahead. And some are a little bit more. Well, let, let, let's see what actually works first. Let's kind of dot all our eyes and cross our T's. And so I think when when you um, create a, a rhythm where and then even a culture where we're doing experiments, that, that's a good way to to negotiate um all of those voices that are present, not just on the leadership teams, but even membership in the church where, yeah, we can see what, you know, what possibilities, where we can go, what, what might be possible without, (laughs) you know, putting everything on the line that the first new idea that might come along. And, and we call that often in GCI with the five voices, like building a bridge, Mm. right? So it gives us the opportunity um, to not get stuck in our ways, but to build a bridge for those who might need to see a more um, tangible, solid pathway forward in that process of repentance and, and renewal together as a, as a church community. Yeah, that's a great point, Kara, because, you know, uh, if you've studied any sort of like change management books or um, books like Diffusion of Innovation, you know, how do ideas tip and become accepted by culture, or by any community, you know, one of the things that you know, comes up time and time again is that there's only a very small portion of any organization or any community that are energized by new ideas, right? Where they don't have to actually see it modeled for them. They, you can just tell them about it. You know, I always say, you know, when, when there were all these Macintosh Apple fanatics who, when Apple announced they're coming up with an Apple watch, no one had even held it in their hand or really knew all that it could do, but they were ready to pre-order it because they, they wanted that technology because they, they could imagine in their mind how it could benefit them. That's a small fraction. The majority of people in your organization will actually have to see these ideas modeled for them. They'll have to see them in action. They'll have to, there's have to be like a, enough confidence that this is working for other people before I'm willing to buy in. Right. And so, you know, you see that with the Apple Watch now where people look over and they, oh, what is that? Did you get that? Do you like it? What does it do? Is it helpful? You know, and when they see, okay, this thing adds value, then they're willing, because of the credibility of that other person who's doing it and using it, that's when they finally buy in. So the the value of these experiments is that you experiment with your your innovators, your risk takers, your courageous apostolic style people. But then if they create something tangible, then that becomes a model that others can see and experience. And they will have an aha moment, not by the idea, but by the actual practice and implementation of that idea. Yes, yes. And that does seem to have a different effect, right? Just the idea versus the the embodiment of that idea. Yes. That's, that's powerful. And, and this is why I think, remember, Jesus's version of this is come and see. You know, yes. I mean, there were some people who, um, you know, literally experienced Jesus, had a miracle moment or like, I'm in, I don't, I don't even know what we're doing, but I'm in. And then others would kind of ask him questions and he would say, I'm not sure ideas are going to convince you. So why don't you just come and see what this is all about? You know, um, come walk with me for a week, for a month, and then you'll have a better understanding. Um, but you know, for some, he invited to join them in the moment he met him for others, he said, it's okay to come and see this model for a bit. Cause that's what you're going to need in order to fully buy in. Yes. And, and one of the things that I, I caught that, that you said to you is in that experimenting, sometimes the, the failures is uh, really what we need to, to learn. And I think when, 
we think about experiments kind of being with that smaller portion of maybe the innovators, uh, the creatives, those people that like to be out ahead, it makes that um, necessity of failure maybe even a little less risky because we can fail without um, bringing harm or failure to to the whole community, which I yes. I, I see is sometimes um, the fear, right? That if we try something new and it doesn't work, how is that going to impact everybody in our church community? It's not just because we don't want to um, be in renewal, be in repentance and, and faithfulness to what God's doing, but what happens if if we do it wrong and people are harmed in the process? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, and that's another element of culture is to create is kind of like a culture that celebrates uh, risk and 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 is able to learn from failure. Yes. So you're not going to be punished if you try something and it fails. Um, as long as you can, you know, maybe articulate what you learned through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you're not going to be punished because it was low risk. I mean, it was small batch. It wasn't a thousand people going through it. We didn't give you a million dollars to try it. You know, maybe we gave you a thousand dollars and 10 people to try it. And so, um, you know, it's, you the da- any damage that might be done was very contained number one right but as long as it you were learning in the direction that you were trying to move in then that's fine that, it, that's called validated learning and that's effective now run another experiment based on that you know so i mean the old line that you know what is it uh thomas edison figured out uh, you know a thousand ways to not invent the light bulb before he invented it or some quote <laughs> like that which i've always <laughs> right. loved you know which is like of course the guy didn't sit down one day and just whip out a light bulb you know, it took him thousands of iterations of things that didn't work or just a little piece worked to continually like improve and, and, and create that. So, um, yeah, I think that's uh, a, a cultural element to try to bake in that it's OK to do that. And there's permission even to do that. I'm, back at my former church here in Hollywood, we even created a, what we called a micro grant program for uh, community activity. So if you had an idea for a way to, to bless or benefit the community around you, you could apply for a $1,000. That was the caps. It didn't have to be all of that, but the cap was a $1,000 micro grant um, for you and a team to engage in trying to serve and bless the community and build relationships that w- might lead to disciple making. Um, $1,000 is not nothing, but it wasn't all of our budget by any means. And we had the ability to do it, but it gave people the permission to say, hey, we'll put some resources behind your experiments, not all of our resources, but some, but you have to then come back and tell us what you learned, right? So if you tried something and it didn't work, we want to know what happened. And I was one of the guys pioneering that. We did something at a local pub for eight weeks and it was fun and interesting, but ultimately it wasn't, it didn't accomplish our purposes of, of making or making new relationships in the community. It was a fun, entertaining night for Christians and that was not our goal. So we shut it down. Mm. And so then we, I remember sitting outside the last night at this pub, you know, and us all saying, all right, what did we learn? Why did this not work like we thought it was going to work? And it was funny. We learned things like parking is really important. And the fact that it's $12 to get a beer at a pub in LA is a factor that <laughs> not everyone wants to go do, you know, and yes. that the, the bar offered us Tuesday nights because that was their slowest night. But that also was really hard to get friends to join you at something on a Tuesday night. 
which is why it was the bar's slowest night, right? right? But, <laughs> but we were willing to experiment, you know, by, by blessing them. We said, hey, we want to help you. So we'll try to bring in people on your slowest night. And that's why they gave us the room for free. And it, they liked having us there. We just couldn't get enough people out. So we had all these kind of lessons that we learned. Um, and we talked about it and then we shut it down. And, you know, those things stick in my mind as I think about what else could I do to engage people in our community? Um, you know, I, I'm not going to try the old way, but I'll take some of that and experiment and build off of it. Yes. Yes. No, that's good. That's good. I um, am wondering, you know, for, for maybe our, our local church leaders that are listening and, and they're wanting to, um, with, with their group of leaders, um, try, try out this, this process of, of the wrestle and the experiment and maybe develop and, mm-hmm. and um, scale. What, what would be the first question? That, that you would suggest that they come together as, as a leadership team and discuss? You know, it's interesting because um, I think part of human nature is to come together and say, let's identify what's broken. What's our biggest, um, you know, weakness and let's uh, deal with it, right? Let's address it. Let's experiment around it. Uh, what, science has shown in human nature and i think what you know the the gospel of grace leads us to is a different approach which is to come together and say okay if we we recognize we need some innovation we recognize that organizationally we need renewal um start by asking the question where is god working and how Mm. can we add more resources to that where is the spirit moving what is jesus doing well what are the stories right now that that we're celebrating now, we may want more of them, but rather than starting with what's broken, how do we fix it? Start with kind of like what's beautiful and how do we fan that flame? You know, yes. where is God already working in our church? It's, you know, it, language of uh, appreciative inquiry is the, the phrase that I hear that's based on a, a book where you, know, you start with this idea of asking what is working, what's, what's good, and how do we join it? Um, and I think that that is a very biblical you know, it's kind of like starting with Genesis 1 rather than Genesis 3. So Genesis 3 right. is that humanity is broken. Genesis 1 is that humanity, is, it bears the image of God. So it's like, hey, let's go back to the beginning and start with what in this organization is thriving. Now, it may be very small. It may be, a, you know, a pocket. It may be one community group. It may be one local outreach team. It may be, you know, who knows. But then saying, you know, how do we um, add resources to that how do we experiment to either scale that up or to try to duplicate that or to just nurture it with and, and provide more resources or expose more people to it? Um, and I think, you know, that approach tends to build positive momentum. Um, there's only so many people that will be inspired by a narrative of decline. You know, mm. you can only get up there and say this church is dying and we need to change. And there's maybe three, three percent of your people will go. That's it. That's what I've been waiting for. I'm ready. You know, most people will just <laughs> <Right>. be depressed <laughs> and just go, well, that stinks. And why am I here? And you know what I'm saying? So um, but if you say, hey, there's this thing going on in our church that we don't all know about. We need to we want to invest more in it. We want to hear more stories about it. We want to replicate that. That is much more inspirational and aspirational and energizing than, than the decline narrative, you know. Um, so I think that's the first thing I would say is 
go on a, you know, an investigation, go on a scavenger hunt and try to find, you know, what area in the life of your community, it doesn't have to be a program, doesn't have to be something done by professionals, doesn't have to be something in the property, but you know, where, where's the nook and cranny in the life of your church that God is doing something really beautiful? And then how do we celebrate that and learn from it and maybe even begin to try to um, reproduce it or, or scale it so that others could join it? I really like that as a starting point. Mm. That's fantastic. And I like that that comparison too, that it's kind of the Genesis 1 starting point. Yes. And yes. it is much more encouraging. Yeah. I wonder too, you know, right now um, in GCI, we're in a time where we're really wanting to focus on um, developing our, our missional rhythms and and mindsets and and be really focused in in our neighborhoods and i i know that um you've already spoken about the the missional mandate that you believe is part of this rhythm of repentance and renewal what more would you have to add to that specifically that um, may be helpful to our our listeners as they continue on this journey of repentance and renewal there is a paradigm that I grew up in that basically, you know, when I came to Christ in, in 1999 and started joining churches and being involved and coming on staff, there was kind of this paradigm that God did his best work in the church. Mm. And that if you really wanted to know what God was up to, you should come to a service on Sunday. Um, and, you know, the most uh, spiritual moment of the week was Sunday at 10 a.m. You know, maybe Wednesday at five or seven at your small group, right? <laughs> um, but that, um, you know, that's where we pointed to say, what is God doing and how do I experience God? And I think one of the paradigms that I have been um, trying to embrace and rethink and renew is this idea that God does his best work out in the world mm. and he invites the church to join him. And, and so, you know, that idea in the same way we talked about appreciative inquiry within the organization to kind of say within my community, um, where is God working and how do I join the work he's doing? Where is the spirit moving? Who are the people who are um, seeking God and asking questions? Who are the, where are the, the pockets of my community where I sense, um, you know, healing is happening or renewal is happening or, you know, there's flourishing happening. Um, and how can I join him there? When I, you know, when I enter into my missional spaces, which, as you mentioned earlier, are often around sports, golf and basketball and yes. softball and, you know, things like that. I, you know, I often will get out of the car and pray just a little prayer like, you know, spirit, alert me to the ways that you're working in people's lives today. Mm. Um, and so then it just sets me into a posture of it's not my job to bring Jesus into this relationship. What I'm wondering is what is God already doing with this person? How is God trying to reveal himself and how could I join that? Maybe it's by adding clarity. Maybe it's by being curious. Maybe it's by celebrating that, you know? Um, and so I think that same idea of, of uh, kind of like the missional scavenger hunt or the curiosity piece for organizations is really helpful. And so, you know, I, I know a lot of, churches who have expressed that they feel like numerically they're dying, financially they're dying, generationally they're dying, who have changed their posture from trying to get the community to come to them on a Sunday in order to experience God and said, instead, we're going to turn this church inside out and we're going to go join the community and try to figure out where God is working. And we're going to do the things that Jesus did. 
we're going to pray and bless and and try to offer healing and repair and acts of service. You know, we're going to discern what is good news to these people and try to live it out. Um, there was an incredible article that I read, you know, probably about five years ago about a church up in Minnesota that was basically acknowledged we're dead. You know, we're this is. You know, as, as I like to say, last man out, close the door, or last woman mm. out, close the door. You know, because this this or, this organization is oh is not going to to self generate new life. And they said rather than just you know sitting around for the next three five years until we all die, um, you know, or everyone leaves, what if we just spent all that time trying to figure out how could we go out as a as a blessing to the neighborhood? And so they basically became like free handymen in their neighborhood. And they, they started providing all these free services. And so rather than gathering for all their programs, they just turned the whole church out inside out and said, okay, instead of a men's breakfast on Saturday, we're going to do a, a work day. And we're just going to go door to door and say, Hey, we've got six guys here. We have our toolboxes, anything in your house that needs repair, we'd love to do it for free. Right. And if it's a bigger project, let us know. We'll try to get a team. We'll come back next week. And within like six months, nine months of this church doing this, they had a whole new reputation in the community and people were like, who are you? Why are you doing this? And then people honestly started kind of wandering in on Sunday mornings because they knew that's when a church gathered to say thank you, to bring cookies and, and, you know, donuts and, and to say, Hey, we love that you guys are in our neighborhood. And it actually like turned their life. They didn't die. They actually mm. started, you know, adding new people to their community who said, we want to join what you're doing. But you know, it all started by, by getting out of their, you know, traditional paradigm that spiritual things happen when we gather in this space and saying, no, no, we want to go join the work of God as an act of scattering out in the community um, and and be a blessing to people out there. So I think that's sort of, you know, inverting your your stance from insiders to focusing on outsiders is one of the best things that that churches can do to try to catalyze some of this new experimentation and creativity. Yeah, that's that's incredible. And I I encourage y'all who are listening to um you know, meditate on that, mm. discern, meet with your teams and and just pray about what areas of experimentation could that look like in your neighborhoods? I don't know, but it's an exciting time. It is an exciting time to be to be Jesus's church. Mm. It always is. But it is. It's good. <laughs> maybe I'm biased because this is when I'm alive, but it is an exciting time. And our time together is coming to an end. So, John, I'm just wondering what final words of um, advice, encouragement do you have for our listeners? Mm. Yeah, you know, in my coaching of leaders and pastors and talking to people, I think the, um, the first thing I always say is don't try to do this alone. You know, mm. like um, there is a a natural reaction that takes place within organizations when you try to innovate and change. And it's usually based around anxiety. Um, mm. People get anxious. And, and as, as I have learned, anxious people behave badly. It's just not the mm. best version of themselves when they're fearful and anxious. And so they do things like sabotage and triangulate and gossip. And so, you know, it can get really overwhelming to, to try to um, lead change all by yourself. So it's so important to have either a coach or uh, some sort of a, you know, denominational cohort or just a tribe of people. You know, I, I sometimes I call them freaks like me, you know, who are the other <laughs> freaks like me trying to do something that we can just encourage each other on a weekly basis and say, you know, how are you doing? How are you holding up? Maybe, 
this week I'll, I'll celebrate your win because I don't have any wins, but next week I'll get to celebrate my win and that'll encourage you, you know? So a lot of the coaching even that I'm doing is, is trying to just help support and, you know, nurture and pastor coaches who are trying to bring change into their organization. Um, and then the second thing is just to put, you know, put your own efforts in perspective and remember that all of God's promises in the New Testament are to his church. They're not necessarily to your church. Mm. God, God has not promised that your local church will thrive and exist forever. I mean, Revelation, you know, Revelation makes the point that even those seven early churches, they're not around anymore. I don't think there's, I don't think any of those churches, a lot of those cities aren't even around anymore, right? But I've been to the ruins of those cities and it's not like there's a group of people hanging out on Sunday morning. And they're like, look, our church survived. It's like, yeah. no, nope, it passed away, but God's global church is thriving and is growing. And so um, one of my kind of, um, one of the prophetic voices in my life who I look up to as a mentor is a woman named Danielle Strickland, whose background was in the Salvation Army Church. And she lives up in Toronto and, and does a lot of kind of speaking. But she just had a great analogy at a conference I was at last year talking about the end of Acts when Paul's being, um, he's about to be shipwrecked and he has a revelation. God basically reveals to him that the ship is going down. And um, and he says, the, sh- the all the people aboard will survive, but the ship will not make it. And she used that as this prophetic analogy of the modern church. And she felt like God was saying to her, listen, the ship is going down, but all the people will make it. Meaning mm. the people of the church are going to be fine. But the, the structure, the system, the hull of the church, which is more like the ship that holds the, the church, that's probably not going to make it. And so, you know, to, to have the courage and to just remember that, like, you know, um, the church as it is may not make it, but that God's commitment is to his people. And so even if my local expression doesn't survive, I my confidence is that God will always provide for his people. Um, and that's what I'm, you know, what, what inspires me is not necessarily even trying to change churches today. What inspires me is having the courage to experiment so that my son, who's 14, you know, in 10 years when he's uh, in his young 20s, so that he will know that it's okay to express church in ways that are creative and innovative that resonate with his friends. And that he'll have the courage, he'll have seen another generation try some things. And ideally, we'll have learned some lessons that he can build on, you know, but I think that you have to have that gen- generational mentality in order to not get too discouraged. Um, your church may not make it, but God will prov- provide for his church. And maybe the lessons that you learn will help the next generation build the better ship, so to speak. Mm. That's so good. That's an excellent word to end on. Thank you so much, John, for joining us today. But before we fully close up, I have a couple of fun questions for you. So All right. the- First thing that comes to mind, if you're ready to go, <laughs> the first question is, what is the best thing that you have bought so far this year? The best thing that I have bought this year is a $20 um, magnetic ring from Amazon that goes on your laptop that allows you to use your iPhone as a web camera. Because the most la- most laptop web cameras are miserable and they they're cheap, and all the zooming and speaking and all the things that we now do 
Um, people think like, oh, you have to upgrade your laptop. You don't. You just need to buy your camera on your phone is probably 10 times better yes. than your laptop <laughs> camera. So for 25 bucks, you can buy a little clip that hooks onto your laptop and attaches for me, attaches to my iPhone. And all of a sudden now my video quality is like 100 times better and everyone wonders how it happened. And I'm like, it's 25 bucks, you know? So I'm, I've become like a salesman for these little things. Yes. <laughs> That's wild. I had no idea. Yeah. The more yeah. you know. That's right. <laughs> All right. Okay. Next question. Would you rather have a pet sloth or a pet parrot? Oh my gosh. I, I am fascinated by parrots. I think, oh, okay. the, I think the concept of parrots, you know, imitating language and convert, I just think it's fascinating. And I would love to run some experiments with my own parrot. You know, I'd love to, <laughs> you know, like how much can you teach parrots to sing and you know, what sort of, could you teach it multiple languages and, you know, could you train it to say something when a new person came in the house? I think that would be super fun and creative to have a pet parrot. Oh, that, you know, you know when you say it like that, that would be, that would be pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite kitchen gadget? Ooh, I'm sitting next to my kitchen. That's a great question. Um, well, it's not. Yeah, it is kind of a kitchen gadget. My family's gotten obsessed with these um, little. Oh gosh, how do you describe this? Um, you clip them onto your fingers, your your middle finger and your pointer finger, and they almost look like miniature chopsticks that extend out from your fingers, and they are meant for eating popcorn without getting your hands greasy. Oh, and so, and so you okay. like slide them over your fingers, and then you move your fingers and grab popcorn. You can only get like one kernel at a time, which is good. It right. slows you down. <laughs> But at the end, your hand is not nasty. And so I'm taking my two kids tonight to go see the uh, see a movie. And I, I know both my kids, before we leave, they will reach in the drawer and grab their little popcorn eaters because <laughs> we actually bring them to the theater with us. Oh, um, that's so fun. Yeah. And so they, they were like stocking stuffers that my wife got as a gift that have been totally implemented and accept, you know, adopted into the normal course of our dietary life around here. So. Yeah. I love that. Especially like movie theater popcorn can oh my gosh. make you pretty so gross. Greasy. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's that's awesome. Well, I hope you all have a good time. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> all right. And then what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, the first thing I can ever remember wanting to be was uh, a, a dinosaur digging archaeologist. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that was long that's before fun. Jurassic Park or anything, but I I um I just always thought it'd be cool to have those little tools you know, the chisels and the, the brushes and, and to just sweep away and discover old bones. Um, yeah, I was probably eight years old, you know, just like a boy digging in the dirt, looking for fossils in my backyard, <laughs> thinking, you know, how amazing would it be if I discovered a T-Rex back here in right. upstate, upstate Connecticut, you know? Right, right. <laughs> put, put the city on the map. <laughs> oh goodness and then finally since we're you know talking about growth innovation and all those mm -hmm. things what is a favorite invention of yours oh yeah favorite here's what i'll say yesterday i had a moment where of total appreciation and amazement over the airbag um, I sadly in here in Los Angeles, I had a car accident right in front of me. It's the closest I've been in years to two cars T-boning each other. And one mm. car went right into a light pole. And my first thought was, oh my gosh, they're dead. And I looked in the window and the airbags had deployed. And within about 30 seconds, the door opened and this woman just walked out of her car. 
And she was clearly oh, shook wow. up, but I was like, are you kidding me? And I just, the whole way home, I was driving going, how did we invent something that can deploy faster than you will collide with your steering wheel? I mean, you know, like, yeah, just the technology of, of understanding that an accident is happening and being able to react faster than, you know, than that light pole can stop your car. I was just incredible. I thought, I wonder how many lives we've saved through the airbag, you know? And so I've never had to use one, thankfully. I don't even know how they work, but I definitely had a moment of just awe and inspiration for human innovation and technology that God gave us the creativity to come up with something like that, which literally is saving lives. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, John, I so, so appreciate you joining us today. It was a rich conversation. You gave us a lot to chew on and pray about and to discuss with our leadership teams in our local churches. And listeners, if anything that John said today, you know, really gave you something to, to nibble on in your mind, I highly encourage you to check out his book, Positively Irritating, Embracing a Post-Christian World to Form a More Faithful and Innovative Church. It is um, a really really helpful book in thinking about how are we repentant and uh, going about our rhythms of repentance and renewal one with another as a church community. Um, and so, John, we love to end our episodes with a word of prayer. And so if you would, I'd love to invite you to pray for our churches, church leaders, members, uh, ministry leaders in GCI. Absolutely. And I'm so looking forward to being with you guys, your global gathering here in a couple months and, you know, meeting, meeting you in person after how all the conversations we've had yes. on Zoom and then and so many of your other leaders from around the world and just um, being encouraged, inspired by what God's doing in, in uh, GCI's communities, you know, globally. But I'd love to pray for, pray for you guys. Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. I thank you that uh, even amidst cultural changes and uh, global pandemics and uh, all the uh, divisions and challenges that that people are facing, that you continue to work, that you are faithful, that you are good, that there is a through line to all of history uh, that is marked by your faithfulness and um, your intervention, Father. I thank you that you are God who is creative, who um, imagined the entire world and called it into existence and that every day as we look at the beauty of uh, the nature around us and even celebrate the innovation of your human beings that we can see it pointing to you and revealing uh, your desire to um, to create to explore uh, to make things new and so I pray for leaders who may be discouraged who may be feeling burnt out or exhausted who are uh, frustrated with not knowing what direction is next I pray that you would allow them to see the ways that you're already working that you would inspire and encourage them and uh, literally just speak into them words of hope and affirmation uh, help them to find tribes of leaders around them so they know they're not alone in this uh, endeavor and uh, we just pray, Lord, as a community that you would help us become better at repentance. Um, give us the courage to be honest about ways in which our own lives, our families, our, our communities, our organizations are, are not expressing the, the nature of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And give us the courage to confess that and to go down this renewal journey of uh, becoming more faithful in those areas. And so uh, conform us to your image, transform us in your likeness, Lord. And we pray your Holy Spirit would... Uh, sustain us in all these efforts that we do to uh, try to worship you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, until next time, folks, keep on living and sharing the gospel. We want to thank you for listening to this episode of the GC Podcast. We hope you have found value in it to become a healthier leader. We would love to hear from you. If you have a suggestion on a topic or if there is someone who you think we should interview, email us at info at gci.org. Remember, healthy churches start with healthy leaders. Invest in yourself and your leaders.